0: Our partner for this episode is the Food Forest card game from Carl Treen. A deck of Food Forest cards put you in the center of a web of relationships connecting plants, insects, animals, and people. With these cards, you will play fun, challenging games based on these relationships, matching the inputs on one card to outputs from another. For example, you can take one card that produces nitrogen and connect it to a nitrogen consumer. One card needs a trellis, while another card can act as one. By matching these relationships, players discover how to use the complex web of nature to their advantage, both in the game and in the garden. Food Forest cards are responsibly sourced, and every deck goes towards planting multiple trees. We not only offset our impact, but honestly improve the environment. Find out more and order your deck of cards today at foodforestcardgame.com. The Permaculture Podcast works with partners like Carl Treen and the Food Forest card game, to grow the show. But these episodes are only made possible by contributions from listeners. Will you support this work? If so, visit thepermaculturepodcast.com slash support and invest in this renewable resource for our community. This is the Permaculture Podcast, and I'm your host, Scott Mann. How do we limit the damage of the greatest terrestrial environmental disaster ever? climate change by drawing down carbon. How we do that in the most effective ways possible form the base of this conversation with Eric Tonsmeyer, as he shares his ongoing research about the impacts of agriculture and how we can use agroforestry to increase productivity and sequester carbon. This interview is also an overview of the global state of carbon farming, as Eric also discusses the reality of what we can do through dietary practices, and engaging in our own food production to create change. For those of you inclined towards policy and top-down approaches, you'll also hear plenty of possibilities of how you can move the conversation in your community and with your legislators. Enjoy this conversation with Eric, and I'll join you after. Then Eric, you've been a guest with me a couple of times here in the past, and I know that you're a voice well-known within the permaculture community, and I wanted to reach out to you just kind of to... Do a bit of a catch-up since the release of your most recent book, The Carbon Farming Solution, some of the articles that you've been writing since then about climate change mitigation through the use of perennial crops and regenerative agriculture, and see what you've learned since the release of that book. If you'd like to give us just a bit of an update on what you've been doing over the past year or two, and we can take the conversation from there.
1: Sure, great. Well, broadly, what I've been doing is bringing the message of that carbon farming is a legitimate part of uh, climate change mitigation to as broad an audience as possible, including trying to work my way up the funding and, and impact food chain. So uh, I had the chance to travel to England and present for a group that Prince Charles put together. That was really nice. And I've been part of some getting a seat at more and more tables where decisions are, are made or, or where you know the right people are in the room who can have an impact around broadening these things and while the conversation is mostly still about organic annual cropping and managed grazing and those are two of the 40 solutions i profile in the book they're far from the only ones and they're they're far from the most powerful in terms of their per acre impact and also in terms of their global potential impact i've been pushing the Tree-based systems, perennial systems, or combining trees with annuals, or combining trees, with livestock, and so on, and and actually getting some pretty good traction on that. So that's one piece I've been doing. I've, I've also begun to re revised and expanded global edition of the perennial vegetables book, and I've been working as a researcher for the team at Project Drawdown on our book. Drawdown that looks at solutions across multiple sectors and is now once again on the New York Times bestseller list for the fourth or fifth week this year.
0: And you're seeing a lot of feedback from Project Drawdown and that book and the work that you've been doing?
1: I am. I feel like when I started writing that book, just the notion of agriculture as a climate change mitigation solution was still very new. And I got to be in Paris when the Paris Agreement was signed. And during that week, that was also really the period when, not through any reason of mine, any impact of mine, but that was kind of the time when agriculture came onto the radar. As a, It's not just about solar panels, you know, but we have to look at land use and agriculture as well, because land use change and agriculture, mostly deforestation and agriculture, are driving about a quarter of human emissions today. So, so that shift has happened. Now the piece I'm trying to angle on is that to point out that agroforestry and perennial crops are particularly effective tools. Actually, there's a great new study that came out not too long ago by uh, someone named Zomer, and it's, I think it's called Trees on Farm, and they look at the... It turns out, by using satellite data, that there is much, much more agroforestry happening in the world than most people had thought, that something like 43% of the world's farmland has at least 10% tree cover, and there's about nine times more carbon in trees on farms than the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change had thought. And also we learned that the number of trees, the percentage of trees on farms is increasing between the year 2000 and 2010, there was like a 4.6% increase globally, which is representing a big amount of land and and quite a bit of carbons. There's a a group that I'm working with who are really trying to push that onto the IPCC's agenda, this intergovernmental panel of scientists. And uh, each country that's part of the Paris Agreement has to um, present a plan and then implement the plan, and they're renewed every five years for how they're going to mitigate and adapt to climate change. And we're doing our best to get higher levels of sequestration approved for agroforestry type systems because that will enable countries to basically get credit and to provide policies and maybe finance and stuff to assist their farmers to move in an agroforestry type direction. So having some scientific data is really helpful and it's broken down country by country. So you can see like Brazil, numbers of trees on farms are increasing rapidly. Argentina, they're decreasing, but globally there is a real, a real increase. And there's billions of dollars being spent every year around 300 400 billion dollars a year just coming through the un climate mechanisms alone and my goal is really to try and steer billions of dollars to people doing agroforestry and perennial crops work around the world most of whom are in the tropics in the countries that have done the least to cause climate change and are suffering and will suffer the most from it so it's a When you look at the science and you tie that to the financing, that's a way to address climate justice and help countries like the United States pay some of our carbon debt that we owe to some of these other regions of the world for being responsible for so much of of emissions.
0: And in including more trees and doing perennial agroforestry, what does that look like? I'm so used to seeing trees on farms mostly for riparian buffers and occasionally some alley cropping, but You know, it's mostly like shelter belts and windbreaks, not really integrated into a farm system. So with what you're looking at around the world, is that just people are planting trees to harvest fruit and nuts from? Or is it a multi-layered system like we might think of as a food forest? What are some examples that you're encountering?
1: That's a very very good question. It's a very broad bunch of things. Here in the U.S., mostly we see the riparian buffers and windbreaks. I'd certainly like to see more additional things being practiced here. And um, then little bits of alley cropping here, but very small. I think there's about 3,000 acres of alley cropping in the United States, so that's minimal. But in China, you can look to temperate China and see that there is intercropping of timber trees, mostly Polonia trees, or empress or princess tree, they call them, um, with the annual crops on a huge scale, something like 12,000 acres. I'm sorry, 12 million acres. That's big. And then there's quite a bit happening in Europe as well. So some of it is uh, things that happen kind of around the edges, like border plantings, windbreaks, riparian buffers. Often you'll see contour strips of perennials mixed in with the annuals to reduce erosion and land degradation. There are timber trees intercropped a bunch, both in Europe and, and in China, although, again, not so much here. And you see a lot of that in India as well. Poplar is one of the biggest trees people use. Poplar uh, here in the U.S. is black walnut and pecan. Really, you know, biomass crops. Black locust as well in Europe. So intercropping these biomass crops and timber crops with the annual crops. And then in the as you get closer to the tropics, the the trees are often nitrogen-fixing trees that are there to support the system. Mostly, I don't see that happening much in colder climates because there tends to be better access to commercial fertilizer here, I think. We're spoiled, I think, is the answer there. But there's no reason it can't be done here. It's certainly being done in North Korea quite a bit, for example, where food security becomes a big deal and fertilizer access is limited. Intercropping those nitrogen-fixing trees is really cool. And then then there's lots of just mixing in the fruit and nut trees or perennial vegetable trees, whether that's you know strips of them or rows of them, whether they're seemingly randomly scattered throughout the fields. When I go to, I was just in Guatemala not too long ago visiting my family and almost every cornfield I saw had avocados growing in it here and there. And that's agroforestry. It's not rows. It's maybe not the optimal way to do it, but it's a traditional integrated practice that that definitely has some has some benefits and we're seeing particularly in the Sahelian region in Africa the like semi-arid regions of Africa very very like lightning speed spread of practices like farmer managed natural regeneration where you allow trees to just kind of grow in the field and the evergreen agriculture where there are some there's a nitrogen fixing tree they use called the apple ring acacia fiderbia albida that drops its leaves in the rainy season so it doesn't cast any shade on the crops but leaves out in the dry season, so it can get its own growth going, and that's a nitrogen-fixing tree that's being planted on like orchard spacing in annual crop fields, and they're finding very dramatic increases in yields of crops, very very dramatic increases in yields of crops, and increases in carbon sequestration as well. So the U.S. is kind of lagging behind. We may be the, we're certainly one of the least impressive countries in the world in terms of agroforestry implementation. Not to denigrate in any way the great work that people are doing in places like the University of Missouri Agroforestry Center, the uh, Virginia Tech, and other places around the U.S. that are that are pushing agroforestry. But it certainly hasn't taken off here in the way that it has in the tropics or even in the rest of the temperate world. We're, we're, even in Canada, I think we're doing worse than Canada. So much remains to be done.
0: From your research and what you're seeing, do you think that agroforestry is lagging behind in the United States because of the mechanization of commodity crops?
1: That is a great question. I think people think that is a reason not to do it. But in fact, in Europe and China, there are highly mechanized systems. Uh, You just have to make sure to space the trees properly so you can get through with the equipment that you need to use to, to grow your annual crops. And uh, you need to select the right crops and the right trees so that they all get along well. And there are some very good models for how to do that. Good, Good case studies, good examples to work from. But yeah, people think that the trees will compete with water and they think that they'll shade out the crops and they think that they'll mess up your equipment and they can do all of those things with poor design. But well-designed systems seem to work really well. In fact, in France, they found that for every 100 acres of annual crops that are intercropped with timber trees, they're producing as much food and timber. To get that same amount, you would need 130 to 140 acres of tree plantation and annual cropping separate. So by putting those things together, you're increasing the efficiency of the use of land. And in China, also these polonia systems, many of them actually produce more grain than systems without trees in them. So it can be done and it can be done on a large scale. It is being done on a large mechanized scale. It's a hard step for farmers. And I think in many cases we want to start with getting people to cover crop, getting people to rotate crops, getting people to apply compost, maybe to put in some contour barriers if they need and do the riparian buffers and windbreaks and kind of work your way in with the trees from the edge of the farm into the center. I think that may be a, a process that works for farmers at the commercial scale. These multi-strata food forest type systems are really, we're just just seeing some early adopters doing that here in the U.S. or in temperate climates anywhere. It's, it's a fairly rare system on a commercial scale. It's of course very widely practiced in the in the tropics. Something like 300 million acres roughly speaking in these multi-strata systems in the tropics. So I feel like here in the cold climates, we've now figured out how to do it at a home scale. There's lots and lots of people with home scale food forests. So the next question becomes moving to that perennial market garden scale or this small scale diversified food forest type system, which has to be simpler, has to be much simpler. <laughs> you can't have 300 species per acre and it'll drive you crazy, but simpler systems and and there's some good work being done on that, both by innovative entrepreneurial farmers, NGOs like the Savannah Institute, and some entrepreneurial farmers are trying to figure that out as well. But it's hard to innovate with new crops and a new production system and find new markets for all of those things together. You have to innovate on every level. And that's a real until we can remove the policy barriers, this sort of system that props up unsustainable agriculture in the United States by subsidizing all kinds of less than ideal practices. So farmers, our farmers are competing with that while paying all the costs of their environmental impact, whereas other people are actually being paid to make bad (laughs) environmental impact. It's hard to, it's hard to make a living as a farmer in that context, for sure.
0: And I think of all the subsidies and everything that support traditional commodity agriculture in the United States. And it was, though I've studied things like agency capture from a resource management perspective, it was my interview with Dr. Laura Jackson, West Jackson's daughter. She was the first person who really pointed out how everyone from Monsanto to the equipment producers, to the farmers, to the middlemen and everybody else involved in the process are kind of captured by this system that supports every element of it. And if you try to veer too far away from it, you lose all of those resources and kind of have to go at it on your own.
1: And that's why it's really the question about mechanization is so important because most of our farms here in the U.S. are very mechanized and we need to find ways to assist those farmers to shift how they produce what they produce without, you know, an increasing carbon sequestration and reducing emissions without making them go back to plowing with oxen or something. You know, that's not... I don't see that happening anytime soon. So we got to to a certain degree, we have to meet people where they are and provide some tools to assist them to move forward. And there's a bunch of ways to do that. There's an article, a chapter coming out in a couple of be out in December by a guy named Nathan Rosenberg, which is looking at recommendations for the U.S. Farm Bill, U.S. policy recommendations around reducing emissions and, and sequestering carbon in the U.S. agricultural sector. Right now, we mostly pay people to do all the wrong stuff. If you're grazing on federal land, you get a contract to do that, but you have to. There's a a stocking rate that they say you can't go below, and many people would find that better grazing of those landscapes would involve having less cows, but you're not allowed to have less cows. And if you're getting crop insurance, in many places you're prohibited from cover cropping because they say that is robbing water from the other crops and You're not allowed to do agroforestry if you get crop insurance because it's not an accepted practice where you live and so on. So the policy system in the U.S. not only rewards people for doing conventional agriculture as we know it, but also actively dissuades people or prevents people from getting access to government resources who are trying to do the right thing. So we need to really shift to both ends of that. And I think that could really free up quite a quite a lot of initiatives and quite a lot of new farms. It's not that there aren't people who want to farm that way, whether they are currently farming or not, or including people who currently farm and people who don't yet farm, but it's hard to do that and make a living. So anything we can do to, to remove the bad and the negative incentives and build some new incentives in would be would be really great.
0: It reminds me of here in Pennsylvania, we have to deal with the total maximum daily load for runoff because of some of the eutrophication issues that are happening in the Chesapeake Bay. And so there are all kinds of things in place to encourage farmers to make changes to that. And yet many of the best practices that we could put in place would take away from growing the crops that farmers are used to. And so trying to help them build a functional polyculture riparian buffer is something that they they look at it and go, I have to take how many acres out of production in order, in order to do this and wait how long till I'll get it back? And even though they can look at the numbers on paper and say, in 20 or 30 years, I'll be able to make substantially more money off that land, the time that it takes to get there is detrimental to the current health of the farm because of how thin their margins are.
1: Yeah, and that's the case for farmers all around the world, that implementing these... Uh better practices, whether it's managed grazing or organic or conservation agriculture or agroforestry or whatever, this whole range of, or better ways of producing rice with lower methane and on and on and on, all these practices, you have a two to five year window before you're breaking even. And I don't know any farm, I know a lot of farmers around the world, I don't know any who can just take that hit for that many years. So we really need a finance system, whether it's I think it should include payments for environmental services from governments, it could include grants, it could include special lines of credit, or better interest rates, or guaranteed access to markets, or premium prices. There's like lots of different ways to make that happen, all of which should be pursued as far as I'm concerned. But... The nice thing is they don't need money forever. They just need money to make the transition. And then once it's done, they're actually making more money. And almost none of these practices were developed for carbon. They were developed to improve farm productivity. So you end up more profitable, but you have to get over that hump. And that, I think, is the key place where we need these financial incentives to help people to get the change happening, the scale that's necessary. in the timeline we have. Those kinds of incentives are, are really necessary. Those kinds of loans are or grants or payments are, are really necessary.
0: And I think what you point to there about scale is important and what you mentioned earlier about market gardens because there are some great folks within the permaculture community who are doing well-documented work on the productivity of those kinds of farm systems, whether it's you know Jean-Martin Fortier out of Canada or Dave and Lee O'Neill, who were featured in Peter Bain's The Permaculture Handbook, as one of his case studies. They're doing a huge amount of income and production on five acres in Virginia. But it's that question of mechanization and all the land that we currently have. Some of the scale seems to be off because i've seen numbers that say that a single person could raise enough food for 10 people on an acre based on the writings of steve solomon the former head of i believe was the territorial seed company who wrote gardening when it counts there's some information out of southeast asia the bio intensive work of like john jevons points to this kind of thing for the square footage that you need but in order to do that that's a return to really like hoe-based horticulture not really gardening or farming as we know it and in order to make that kind of conversion, we'd need 10 to 15% of the world's population to become farmers within a generation.
1: Which is not the trend currently.
0: Yeah, I can't see that happening. So it is how do we use the systems that are in place to move towards what we see as a solution and what is possible.
1: Yeah, and more biointensive in cities is great. And in backyards is great, but agriculture happens on big farms. And right now here in the US, at least, you know, those are the number of, those are very low population areas and farming doesn't pay terribly well. It's not like we can pay a lot more for hand labor in, in agriculture as we, as we have it. And really, it's one of the ways I've been thinking about this is the difference between really prime farmland and all other farmland. Prime farmland being, you know, pretty flat, pretty fertile and able to bounce back from disturbance and degradation And that's about a third of the world's cropland. The other two thirds of cropland is too steep or the soil's bad or the soil's degraded. And those are the places that need trees the most in terms of erosion control and avoiding degradation and so on, avoiding further degradation or restoring land. It's very easy to make the argument for perennial crops and agroforestry in those lands prime farmland maybe just putting in a little riparian buffer and doing your better versions of annual production whether that's conservation ag or organic or some of these new regenerative systems that borrow things from organic and borrow things from conservation agriculture i think that nice flatland is where or the better rice production practices and so on i think those are the ways that might be a fine thing for people to do there for now on land that doesn't erode easily and doesn't give up its carbon easily and is already in farming. Oh, here's the other thing about the intensive piece is you, you can feed people on a pretty small amount of land if they're willing to eat a plant-based diet. But if they want to have a lot of meat, that changes the situation dramatically because meat is much you get much less food per acre when you're raising livestock much 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 less so it's sort of uh we can reduce food waste uh which is 30 to the 40 percent of the world's food is wasted never gets eaten by anybody we can change diets to lean them on a more more plant-based or lower on the food chain like eggs and dairy over meats and and there's some role for meat certainly and we can talk about it we can get into that whole conversation at some point here but I see that the path from here to everyone eating food grown on a very small biointensive area is probably not the most likely scenario, although as much of that as we can do, I think is, is fabulous.
0: And I know I mentioned him, but I believe it was Steve Solomon who didn't refer to himself as a as a vegetarian, but as a vegetabletarian, because most of his diet came from vegetables and plant-based material, but that it was... A choice because of the way that he was growing food, but not an abstinence from or a rejection of meat for a lifestyle, but because of a food production decision.
1: Yeah, I mean, just in terms of land use, we're not getting any food out of all those pastures anyway. Most of the world's grassland that is grazed is not really suited for growing annual crops. So it's not like that's competing with human food, although there's many trees for food that could grow in those places or you can make leaf protein concentrate, which is like a green tofu, out of those grasses from those places and that would be a much more efficient use of land than in terms of protein per hectare. Uh, You'd be better off with that than with cows. Again, I I love beef and and dairy, but it's become pretty clear to me and looking at the science that there's kind of two main ways to approach meeting the world's demand for livestock. And one is to reduce, well, I guess the first one is reducing demand. And right now, we have the opposite trend, increasing demand for meat and livestock products around the world, the spread of the American diet, which has health consequences and stuff too. But on the other hand, one way to do it is to say, some people are arguing that the most ecological way to, the most environmentally friendly way to raise livestock is actually in confined animal feeding operations because less land is used. So you can have, it reduces deforestation or could even allow some reforestation. That's certainly one argument. I'm not wild about all the many other things that happen in that kind of production model in terms of animal welfare and health of the animals and pollution from uh, over application of methane or manure lagoons, all that stuff. Then the other, the other vision is people are calling livestock on leftovers, which it turns out that's who I am. I didn't know until I read this recent report. That's what it's called. And they were saying, okay, well, what if we fed no grain to livestock at all that could be eaten by people? So they can have all the grass they want to eat on pasture, and then we can provide, especially for the chickens and pigs and stuff that can't eat grass any more, better than we can, basically. About 10% of their diet can come from grass. It's not so much. They would eat uh, crop residues, things like stubble left in the field or the press cakes that are left over after you extract oil from soybeans or something, and then food waste. So, and if we were to look at that as sort of the model of how much we could have, how much meat we could have and, and dairy and eggs we could have without and doing it in a carbon friendly way, let's say, and without further deforestation to make more room for livestock or food for livestock, the fair share would be about half to a third of the amount of animal protein Americans eat every day. The global fair share, everybody, if it was distributed evenly, everybody would get, you know, about a third to half of what folks from the U S eat in protein every day from animal sources so we can't all eat 10 grass-fed steaks a day and graze our way to a better climate because there's only so much grassland and we certainly don't want to be clearing land for any kind of agriculture we don't want to be cutting down forests actually we want to be reforesting as much as possible and silvopasture gives us a way to get those trees back out onto some of these grasslands to greatly increase carbon sequestration and make for a much more climate-friendly livestock production system. So in the carbon farming book, I looked, kind of my question was really looking at the per hectare, per, per acre, per unit area impacts of these various practices. I didn't look at the global scale and how much land there is because I was trying to make it not be a thousand pages, but I've had the chance in the last couple of years to look at that and see, to sort of try and do permaculture designs for the whole world and say what's the highest and best use of all these various forms of, of land, and how much meat do people get? And mostly, unless you live in a place like Mongolia or you know Wyoming or something, where grazing is perhaps the highest and best use of the land, agriculturally speaking, the answer is uh, most of us here need to eat a, lot, a fair amount less. It's not that everyone needs to be vegan, although actually when you look at the numbers on how much land could be freed up, the vegan diet its unarguably very positive for the amount of reforestation that could be carried out, for example. The problem with this intensification argument that everybody should be raising their meat in, in confined animal <laughs> operations because that's the best thing for climate, well, first of all, it's really not good for lots of other reasons, and they're not comparing it to civil pasture systems and so on. But also, it assumes that if you increase productivity, that means that people won't continue to cut down forests in places like brazil and that's not what we find what we find is that when you what scientists find is that when you increase yields when you increase productivity everybody around you wants to do what you were doing and they'll cut down lots of forests to pick it up so unless growing more on the land we have is combined with very strong enforced forest protection it actually just makes things worse so this whole like we have to feed the world by 2050 and there's going to be 9 or 10 million people, to billion people or whatever. And therefore, more chemical agriculture and confined animals, the only answer, that's really a, a very, a lot of people think that. A lot of people who are in charge of stuff think that. And I think it's on us to show that there's other kinds of intensification, that is, we can grow more per acre by using more layers, or by using agroforestry, or there's millions of ways to increase yields that don't involve increased chemical fertilizer application. And there's lots of ways to raise livestock that don't involve combined animal feeding operations. And we, this is like the new big battle in carbon farming is is looking at global food supply and fighting about uh, what's the best way to use the world's land and prevent deforestation, which nobody wants more deforestation. In terms of carbon, everybody knows that bat, that's bad, but we have a real battle brewing at the moment. We could call it a dialogue, I guess, but it's sort of a battle over what's the what are the best ways to use the world's land.
0: And looking at those issues holistically and talking about everyone could consume about a third to a half of what a typical American eats in animal protein every day, that's also about food security and food equality then, because if we're... In a place where we can reduce our consumption that allows for others to have the same, then it touches on so many different issues, not just with like food policy, but also you know, economic equality and everything else when it comes to different people around the world in their own given cultures, being able to self-determine what is best for them by having more
1: options and opportunity available. That sounds right on to me. It's the third ethic of permaculture. And it's not as though if I eat less meat, there's going to be more meat for somewhere someone else to eat necessarily because distribution is a political and economic phenomenon. It's We're already raising enough food to feed 10 billion people. It's just that a bunch of it gets used as biofuel and a bunch of it gets fed to animals. And for every 10 pounds of grain you feed a cow, you get one pound of beef. But people could have eaten those 10 pounds of grain. So it's really a question of where civilization wants to put its efforts. And if... We want to have a, a minimum standard of food for everyone, which isn't really the case right now. So gets into a lot of these big questions of distribution and producing more food is not maybe necessary, but it's certainly not the only necessary thing to resolve food security and hunger issues and so on.
0: And it's one of the things when you said about livestock on leftovers that really touched a chord for me because of knowing so many folks who have raised food for market through farmers markets and organic orchards and other things, that there's so much food that goes to waste just because it's not viable in the marketplace. You get some apples that have a bit of scale on the skin that just look unappealing. They're still perfectly fine and edible, but it's not something you can put in a bag and sell to somebody.
1: Yes, that sounds familiar. Yes. And one of the easiest things to do with that food waste is feed it to livestock, That is, I mean, the best thing would be to arrange for people to eat it. That's not always possible. So feeding to livestock is great because it's when food waste goes in the dump, when it goes to a landfill, it emits methane. So if we can feed it to animals, that's better. And then if we compost the animal manure, that's better still. And we're also reducing the amount of cropland used to raise, let's say, corn and soybeans for those pigs and chickens or whatever. So it's a multifunctional approach. You're never going to get food waste down to zero percent but how much can we reduce it and if we can't as we reduce it how much can we better use the food waste that we have And permaculture is really good at figuring out what to do with waste're we're, we're very good at that it's one of our one of our strengths is is having an eye for waste and how we can put it to work and Malson's old principles you know about a pollutant is just something you haven't figured out a good use for there are exceptions to that like uranium probably that we don't want being used much at all but just the sheer amount of food waste and plastic waste and and urban bio waste and stuff human ore all these streams need to get made into need to get made into cycles and, and even upcycling wherever possible in order to address the climate challenge and all the other social and ecological challenges that permaculture was developed to try and solve
0: And as permaculture practitioners diversify the spaces that they exist in, as we move further and further away from just being landscape designers and teachers of this material to get it to more people, as different folks focus on applying permaculture to where they're at, we're finding more and more solutions for all of these issues. And I say that because when you talk about the waste coming off from feeding livestock. I've been doing a lot of work with a local farm here in central Pennsylvania. It's actually the Dickinson College farm and they have a biodigester there. And so they've been talking a lot about the research of what can be done with, with biodigestion and it's the way that we can stack all of these different functions together, but for so long because of that focus just on the landscape that we haven't looked at the other technologies that are available. And now as that's happening, it's learning, okay, well, I can feed my food scraps to my animals, that manure comes out, I can feed that into a biodigester, which then becomes a rich effluent to go back on my fields as well as producing biogas that I can, depending on the scale, create a complete holistic combined power and heat system for a farm. So that all of the energy that you need on site is being created by the farm itself and its waste and its
1: residue. Yeah, and these very tightly integrated systems like that are hard for scientists to study and follow because there's so many moving parts, and they're harder to spread than, say, just using cover cropping on a farm. But they do represent, to me, these very complex integrated diversified systems, to me, represent sort of the high bar, the gold star of sustainability, like biogas alone is one of the, is maybe the best of all the bio based energies in terms of energy sources in terms of its climate impact. And when it's an integrated part of you get food waste that goes to the pigs and then the manure goes to the biodigester and then the remainder of the slurry gets put out on crop fields or whatever the, you know, the, the stuff that's left over after biodigesting. So you're generating electricity. And none of that is really in these people's projections when they look including what we did in drawdown it was too hard to model all of that but i'm fairly confident that those systems like our one here at home and like the many ones you see all over are where we need to see more and more people go if we're gonna try and stick to 1.5 degrees celsius warming or even to two we need to see more and more of that
0: with what you just said about trying to keep warming to 1.5 to 2 degrees celsius What kind of impacts do you see agroforestry and changing our agricultural systems having on this?
1: Well, potentially, it could have a big impact. I mean, energy has to shift away from fossil fuels dramatically and rapidly. There's no way around that. But agriculture is really, it's a huge land use, and we really can't live without food. It's a fairly central human concern. So... The total amount of impact. Well, let me put it this way. In Project Drawdown, we looked at a number of different solutions and we ranked them against each other. So we looked at buildings, we looked at waste, we looked at materials, we looked at women and girls, all different kinds of ecosystem management and transportation and all these things, many of which have been part of the you know core permaculture curriculum for a long time. We found that When looking at the total impact in terms of gigatons of carbon dioxide equivalent by 2050, that food waste and plant-rich diet were number three and four out of 80. That is, they were among the very highest. Silvopasture, which is trees and pasture, was the highest of all agricultural solutions at number nine. Then number 11 was regenerative agriculture, which is really um, better annual cropping that would include some of organic practices and some of the conservation ag practices. Tropical staple tree crops was number 14. <laughs> so these agricultural practices are, are pretty big. And, and as a sector, when we included the demand reduction from diet and food waste and crop production and livestock production, food production, consumption, and, and so on was the most powerful sector of all sectors. There's a greater drawdown found, a greater impact from food demand and supply changes, that was larger than the total for electricity generation. That's a pretty big deal. That's really a very big deal. So it's big. It's a big, big, important sector. And there are a lot of initiatives happening, which are great. But but again, they're, they're agroforestry is often an afterthought or not even considered in those conversations. So that's where I'm trying to really make the case, push hard with the case for it.
0: Hearing that is really impressive because so much of the conversation usually is around either transportation because of cars being evil. Um, <laughs> and
1: they are. They totally are. Yes.
0: They totally yeah. are. Which it's still, you know, being a longtime gearhead and, and wanting to burn every drop of gasoline to go fast when I was younger, it, it hurts sometimes. But then I, I see what Tesla is doing, that their electric cars are faster than anything that I've ever driven. But the way that we can transition these things and how, and how renewable energy prices continue to drop between wind and solar, and how we're finding that panels last much, much longer and can, and can potentially be recycled at the end of life to reduce the need for rare metals and things. And yet, all the work and focus that's going in that direction doesn't have the same impact as agriculture.
1: All those things are necessary, absolutely. What Drawdown found is we don't achieve, we don't get to achieve our climate goals without aggressively moving forward on every solution. And my world happens to be agriculture. As a result of working on Drawdown, I am eating a lot less animal products, although not zero, just less. I'm riding my bike more to go places and really tracking our food waste much more closely. It all ends up in the compost or or feeding our chickens anyway. But it's assisted me to start to look at a bunch of these other... Issues. And I think in permaculture, we often look at food production, but permaculture certainly encompasses transportation, regional planning, energy production, waste management, all of these things are in there. I think we actually, permaculture presents a very useful lens for looking at uh, overhauling civilization. We've been wanting to do that for a long time. It's been on our list for a long time. And now that's what's called for is a fairly rapid. Transformation of all of the key sectors of civilization, economics, politics, as well as all these kind of uh, food and energy and materials and transportation. So it's really, in a way, a great time for us all to step up and put our money where our mouth is, or put our put our ideas to the test at at the big scale, while also not thinking that we invented all that stuff and are the only people who have good opinions about it. But getting to know all the other experts in all those other fields and seeing how we can. Be part of a a working coalition to build a kind of build a new civilization in the next ten to twenty years. No rush, right? No rush, but it is rather if not urgent, it's certainly a very immediate need. And it's good that we've had enough time to work out a lot of these solutions for various climates, like the the cold climate food forest, not a problem anymore. That was hypothetical for a long time, and it's really not anymore. So great, check. One thing checked off the list. A lot more things to add to the list.
0: And my teaching partner and I often talk about favoring biology over technology, but also seeing, though, that as we make these transitions, some of the things that are coming out of Jerome Ostentowski's work with greenhouses and things, that there's a lot of things that we can do to provide, and I know you and I have talked about this quite a lot, that we would like to provide a soft landing, you know, still being able to walk in and turn on our lights if we want to, but still have a radically different world and there are lots of options to make that move in a way that is not difficult in the way that i think that some folks imagined or still remember when we had the first earth day and some of the talk that was coming out of the 70s about a severe energy crash and food shortages and everything else but now we're in a place where we can really take all of these design elements and particularly as permaculture practitioners because we have a holistic understanding of so many things then why not apply that holistic approach, not just to our landscape designs, but to our organization and system designs to bring in all these different voices? There's no reason for us to have to redesign agriculture when there's all this great research that's come out of land-grant universities and elsewhere that tell us how to do silvopasture and ag- agroforestry.
1: I'm there all the way. Oh, uh, can I talk about the new perennial vegetables project for a minute? Um, yeah, go ahead. The final thing that I'm working on is we're doing a a revised and expanded edition of Perennial Vegetables. The the first edition came out 10 years ago and is still doing well. People are still buying them. and, And for a lot of people, that's been a real important book to get them into finding what plants will grow for them to mix into their permaculture system. And this time around, we're going really global with the scope of the book. So we're including all of the world's gardenable climates. And uh, I have 800 species on the list already in the database for it. So there are so many more perennial vegetables than I ever would have thought. And it looks like about 10% of all the plants that have ever been cultivated for a non-ornamental use. There's about 6,000 non-ornamental crops in the world. It would be timber trees and forage grasses and vegetables and the whole thing there. About 10% of those are actually perennial vegetables. It's just that the great majority of them never left the place where they were brought into cultivation and began domestication. So there's a huge pool of perennial vegetables from all around the world for us to work with. And we're even doing uh, looking at the nutrition analysis, and I'm hoping to be able to to compare the perennials and annuals and, and compare trees with edible leaves to herbaceous perennials with edible leaves to annuals with edible leaves. So far, there's a pretty clear trend that the trees are, trees with edible leaves are very nutritious. And I'm hoping to really be able to to make a nutrition-based argument for perennial vegetables say like carbon is important for sure. And all the other benefits are important, but they're better for you. And so far, it looks like that's broadly speaking the case, but we haven't finished analyzing all that data yet, but it's, it's very exciting. I think it's going to be a real, I think it's going to offer some assistance to people to, to have a lot more options, even in cold climates. I have lots of new things for, for cold temperate, and I have a bunch more things for cold and dry climates, even Arctic. I have the Arctic in there, <laughs> things you can grow in like Northern Alaska and stuff. That's going to be really fun. I think maybe we can come on and do a show about it when it comes out, which should be hopefully sometime around uh, the end of 2018 for publication, but it's early, a little early to say so far.
0: Well, I would certainly love to have you back on to talk about that because I had the author of Around the World in 80 Plants on, and so getting that kind of information to people, it continues to be important for me because there are a lot of arguments being made for nutrient density. The folks at NOFA have been talking about that for a number of years, and this interest in the way that we can relocalize our diet. And I know there's a lot of also interface between the rewilding and the foraging community and permaculture folks, and how can we continue to foster those relationships by what plants they know about and have available to them? And I'm sure your research probably touches on a lot of that as well.
1: A lot of the work on perennial vegetables for cold climates is based on what wild edible plants there are because we have so few really properly, like we have asparagus and artichokes and and sunchokes, right? And that's about it. We don't have a lot of highly developed cold climate perennial vegetables. The wild ones are a lot of where we turn, although there are some very nice ones from China and I'm including in the book more information on some of the trees and shrubs from Asia that have edible leaves, for example, that grow very well here and are at the top of the charts for nutrition. The fragrant spring tree and edible leaf goji are two of the most nutritious leaves in the whole world, and they grow great here in Massachusetts. So trying to get the word out on that. Lettuce is great. Grow some lettuce. But if you want nutrition, grow, grow these other things.
0: And that nutrition will become ever more important as we continue to grow and shift our diets.
1: I do think so, yes. Again, not that I'm advocating not eating any meat at all, but just less, I think less for most of us. It's really pretty clear pretty clear answer. When uh, And that's not, again, so much as the, at the farm scales when you look globally and how how many kilos of dry matter you have to put in to get this many eggs or pounds of meat or whatever. And I know people really love to fight about this, but it's fairly straightforward math. If they're eating grass that we can't eat, that's great. That's 100%. That's like an all win for us. But if they're eating grain, that is a problem. And uh, I feed my chickens some grain, but we're really working on feeding them as much as possible from the silkworms that we raise that just eat excess mulberry leaves and uh, and our food waste and some extra leaves from the garden. So I'm hoping to do some calculations and figure out how much of the diet of my chickens is actually coming from from feed. I I, I think it's less than 50%. Yeah.
0: And those will be important and interesting numbers to see because just from like a human diet perspective, I know a lot of times when I talk with folks who are foraging or even growing their own food, when we actually break down the numbers of how much, where the calories are still coming from, it, a lot of it's still from the grocery store. It's not from the farmer's market or CSA shares, and it's taking that holistic approach to all of it. And I also don't think that saying that we need to eat more plants in our diet is a very radical kind of a thing to suggest because it's been, I think I first heard that from Michael Pollan probably a decade ago.
1: Yeah, and they were writing about it in the 70s. Diet for a Small Planet was already talking about that in the 70s. It's just, uh, we get a little bit excited. Sometimes meat producers get a little over-enthusiastic about their thing, and meat's great, I love it, but it's not something for us to eat large amounts of every day if we want to maintain the world's forest land. It doesn't really work.
0: Well, and I'd love to continue this conversation and dig in some more about non-prime land for animal use because I know that's been an argument within permaculture about, you know, raising goats on steep land or converting grasses and things that we can't consume into animal products, but we are at about the end of the time that we've agreed to today. So we'll have to we'll definitely have to do this again. But in the in the couple of minutes that we have left, is there anything else that you want to share before we draw this to a close?
1: I guess not. Nothing's jumping into my brain.
0: Then Eric, thank you for taking this time to catch up. It's always good to hear your voice and know about what you're doing as we continue to move permaculture into a place where we're combining all of these great ideas and experiential knowledge with the research and science that's emerging across so many disciplines. So thank you for being one of those voices that ties all this together and being such a great communicator
1: of these ideas. Well, thanks, and thanks for being the one who brings us all together and gives us a chance to talk to each other.
0: And that was Eric Tonsmeyer, Find out more about him at perennialsolutions.org and the Carbon Farming Solution at chelseagreen.com. You'll find links to those and a lot more in the resource section of the show notes. Given the range of topics touched on regarding climate change, some of that information includes not only those mentioned by Eric, but also a number of previous interviews, such as the one with Dr. Laura Jackson, Keith Keeley of the Savannah Institute, small-scale farmers Lee and Dave O'Neill at Radical Roots, and the market farmer, Jean-Martin Fortier, as well as Jerome Ossentowski of Central Rocky Mountain Permaculture. In that conversation with Jerome, he even touches on the impacts he's seeing of climate change after his many years in the high-altitude environment of Colorado, where Crimpy calls home. As I put together the notes for this show, I'm left thinking about how to move forward in a meat-reduced world and have some questions that I need to answer for myself to see the numbers on how viable that idea of meat on leftovers is. What kind of productive numbers are we looking at? What systems do we need to implement to capture food waste so it gets to animals instead of the refuse bin? As is usual with these conversations with Eric, I should have expected to be left with more questions after talking with him. So I'm going to go and keep digging into this, and we'll share more as I find it. I would like to have Eric back sometime to continue the conversation about permaculture and food production on marginal land. So if you have any questions about this, or anything else we covered in today's conversation, leave a comment in the show notes or get in touch. Email show at permaculturepodcast.com, call 717-827-6266, or you can send me a letter if you prefer something analog, The Permaculture Podcast, PO Box 16, Dauphin, Pennsylvania, 17018. From here, the next conversation is from guest host David Bilbrey, who sat down with John Seed, to talk about saving the Los Cedros Biological Reserve. Until then, spend each day creating the world that you want to live in by taking care of Earth, yourself, and your community by capturing carbon wherever you can.